Welcome to the Climb Podcast. I'm Lynn Robbins, Director of Climb. This podcast is the first in a series of podcasts Climb is producing to address faculty and students' concerns about racism, sexism, and other forms of bias that impede teaching and learning and degrade our learning environment. In this podcast, we'll introduce pedagogical frameworks that teachers can use to create just and equitable learning materials and learning environments. Joining me in the studio today is Amanda Cost, Edwin Lindo, and Roberto Montenegro. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So I'm Amanda Cost. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine. I teach in a variety of medical student education programs and see patients at Harborview Medical Center. And I'm Roberto Montenegro. I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital. I'm also the director of mental health services at the Echo Glen Youth Center. And I also help teach uh, medical students in different realms, including um, the Ecology of Health and Medicine. And I'm Edwin Lindo, also in the Department of Family Medicine as a faculty and lecturer. And my focus has been on the issues of race and racism within the medical field and also how race and racism affect our maneuvering through this system. And uh, it's, it's great to be here. Thanks for coming. Could we start by each of you describing what would be an ideal state for you? An ideal place for us as faculty is to be able to hold the contradiction that we can critique ourselves and our work and our profession while simultaneously teaching it to our students and knowing that that doesn't make us less of a content expert, but that it actually means we, we embrace the humility of progressing our profession to make it better uh, so that our students can learn from it in an environment that is not just didactic, but an environment where students say, this faculty member is so aware that they are even willing to critique their own work. I respect that so much. That's what I would say. Yeah. And, and what we're trying to propose, right, which is going into the concept of structural competency, which is moving away from the individual as a, a foci for understanding disease to understanding the external factors beyond the individual level uh, that contribute to disease and illness. And uh, that's what we are hoping to really get going here with the curriculum at, at the UW School of Medicine. What we're hoping to convey to people is that they have a lot of emotions or fear or worry, and that the point is not to be an expert in everything, but if you can develop expertise along this line, along this kind of dialectical way of thinking and also critical way of thinking, that then you don't you don't need to be an expert, right? You just need to be kind of open and willing to consider multiple perspectives and to really engage in those perspectives in an authentic way. And that, that I think, is what is going to address the problem more so than everybody learning all the nuts and bolts about every single thing. There's just too much to learn and things change, right, over time. You know, I was looking at a dictionary and they had the term transgendered ED, which two years ago was like totally cool. And now is, for some folks, is totally offensive. And so to believe that we can faculty development everybody to the point where they're going to get all this perfect is not the goal. If we talk about the critical lens and the structural competency lens, I'm just wondering how many instructors would already think we're, we're already doing that. Because they're covering social determinants of health. We're, you know, and EHM is covering that. And what this pedagogical shift argues is that 
every lecturer should be doing this. Is this really happening or not? I think some people have made strides to like include it in their syllabi, but I don't think it's happening every single lecture. And is it realistic? Yeah, and yeah, and I don't even know if it's realistic to do it every single time, but I think it is realistic when things pop up to not ignore them. Thanks for sharing your views of the ideal learning environment. I'm wondering what kind of actions can we as educators take to move us from our current state to the states that you envision? The, the concept of implementing this kind of pedagogy is relatively new. Basically, every time you mention race, be able to discuss the race, gender, ability, whatever other social identifier you're putting in the content of your lecture, be able to identify outside factors, sociopolitical, economic, structural, insurance, different things that may contribute to outcomes. At first, this sounds very daunting. We're asking lecturers on top of lecturing about endocrinology and diabetes. Now we want you to be able to explain how society is worsening this or maintaining this at the bad level it is now. That can be daunting, and there are steps uh, that we can recommend on how to break this down into smaller steps so that you can start with baby steps and then be able to build your own knowledge base and then start feeling comfortable. And again, going back to um, being humble and acknowledging that we're not going to know all the answers. So it sounds like what you're describing is a skill that I was introduced to as an anthropology graduate student. It's really developing the ability to make things that are culturally familiar strange so that you can actually see them and ultimately question them. So in the culture of medicine, race and gender are categories that are frequently taken for granted. How do we help faculty develop the skill of critiquing these familiar categories while at the same time teaching about them? I think it's an important skill to develop, and I think it's very visibly noticeable what happens when you don't develop it. The tension in the classroom just continues to get more and more intense like we are experiencing now. Mm -hmm. We're asking faculty to change uh, their perspective and sort of think of their knowledge as dialectical, right, and as always growing rather than as their own entity and their own private specialization that it's now a um, product of multiple players. To, to add to that, I would say treating these topics that perhaps seem ancillary to medicine and, and understanding that they're actually integral to medicine and the practice of medicine. And to be clear, I'm talking about race, racism, gender, cissexism, a number of other isms, another number of levels of oppression that start creeping into our content without us even knowing it, mostly because of the blind spots that we carry through privilege. I had a thought after what Roberto said, and also what you said, like, how do you make the strange familiar and the familiar strange? Like, I think that that is actually what's happening in our classrooms right now is the students are making the familiar strange. And that is very distressing. Because for the longest time, the familiar is very familiar to us, right? And we show up and we teach and we do what we've always done and it's comfortable and we're all good. And I think that people pointing out the strange and what is familiar to us is very, can be very upsetting. Um, it can make you feel like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about or you don't have the authority to kind of discuss or, or teach on any topic, even though you may know it quite well, right? And so I think that... The students are asking us to do that work alongside with them. And I think we are finding it distressing to be 
doing that work with them as well um, because of the way that we've been socialized and because it's very difficult to, these are all of our blind spots that we just are unaware of. We have accepted students into this institution that are intelligent. And if we're expecting them not to critique us, then I think we're setting ourselves up for failure. I actually hope they do. When someone mentions something that perhaps you haven't heard of, you say, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't heard about it that way. Let me go back and do some research on that. I think it's an important component of uh, education. Uh, I had an attending who very poignantly sat me down one day and said, hey, listen, Roberto, we're going to be working very closely together. We're going to be reviewing a lot of difficult cases. If I ever say anything that is inappropriate, uh, offensive, or if I even uh, uh, say a microaggression, can you call, call me out on it? Because I really want to get better on that. And I remember I sat there and I thought, how does this person know all of this, uh, this language? And it was very impressive. And for me, it was very comforting to know that someone, his senior status would be this humble to ask me a trainee for help. And I do that all the time now with my trainees. So modeling works. Its behaviorism at its best. So I think it's important for us to start working on that both in the clinical setting and in the lecture setting. Uh, and even before that question happens in the classroom, critique yourself in your profession. Start to question your content. When your content says, oh, there's only two genders, perhaps that's where we pause and we say, can I be critical about this? And how do I do that in a way that is, is humble, but also make sure that I teach the students what they need to know? I think the other thing, too, that students are asking us to be critical about is this idea of heritage versus race versus racism. And um, I remember one of our other colleagues used to say, you should never talk about race as a risk factor unless you talk about racism. And we spent a lot of time talking about race as a risk factor. And I think both of you have repeatedly said this is not a genetic or biological indicator, but the way that folks experience the world is very real. This is a very real experience that folks have, and this has very real impacts on their health. And so how do you kind of reconcile our quick and dirty race as, as really an indicator of how folks are moving through the world and, and experiencing oppression and marginalization? And at the same time, there are diseases that are more common based on your heritage. I think a pretty good example of this is, you know, certain rates of types of cancers or inborn errors of metabolism in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. The reason that happened is because you have to go to history. Historically, they got down to like 300 or 500 people and those genetic alleles were concentrated in a population. And then we see that today because of this historical event that happened when their community was decimated and there were only a few survivors. But we talk about this as those, those folks are just kind of like there's some, there's some sort of genetic misfit or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I struggle a little bit with like, do we put every single tiny bit of history in there? But I think some important ideas around how does this occur is helpful, right? Like mm -hmm. as, that, as that being an example. Another example I think about is what's been historically taught in medicine is black folks get sickle cell disease. Mm -hmm. And it's because um, it confers resistance to malaria. But it's, it's black folks in this country, in other countries... It's folks that live along the malaria belt where there mm -hmm. is malaria. But what is a heritage, like I am from this part of the world, ends up being a race thing in the U.S. and gets conflated also with the racist experiences that people have, right? Because yeah. the kids 
the black kids in the U.S. with sickle cell disease are having horrible outcomes because they're experiencing racism. It's not just because they happen to have sickle cell disease. Mm -hmm. It's all those things. Yeah, Yeah. I think it's ironic, right? We say context is everything, and then we (laughs) decontextualize. We say that people are parts of a population. We talk about treating population health, but we're so tempted to treat the individual in front of us. So there is that tension. You know, how do you help people develop sort of like a a double vision, both seeing the person in front of them and then understanding the history and the context, the greater context. It has significant harm in the clinic if we start essentializing identities, if we start erasing historical context. We are teaching students to recognize patterns. So, for example, uh, female, obese, and 40 any physician would automatically already start thinking of common diseases. Like I thought about gallstones. Cholelithiasis and gallstones, exactly. (laughs) So we get trained into pattern recognition. And I personally can't answer at this moment and uh, why female uh, obese women over the age of 40 have higher propensity of gallstones. We're taught that that's the case. And then we move on to the next topic and to the next So being a little more critical and thinking, I wish I would have taken the time and stopped and thought, why? And instead, I just think, okay, now I know this. I need to move on. There's Mm -hmm. so much content. And as faculty, I think we can help answer the why uh, and move the conversation a little bit into now squarely on race. And I think it's important because race is a lazy proxy for true social determinants of health disparities. I hear attendings and they say, they're, they're reading a patient chart, and they say, 35-year-old black male. They start there, and I stop, and I say, what is the relevance of them being black? And every time I've asked that question, the response is, it's a good question. I don't know. And then, and then after they think about it, they say, well, I, you know, I've seen studies of higher prevalence of X, Y, and Z, anxiety, high blood pressure, diabetes in the black community. And I say, do you think it's because they're black? Their skin color is the pathology that is causing their diabetes? Or is there something else that we haven't dug into, which is what, what we're saying here, but we've created a lazy taxonomy based on, on a skin color, when perhaps digging a little bit deeper, we say this person is probably in the lower quartile of socioeconomic status, family didn't go to college, they haven't had insurance for the past 15 years. What zip code do they live in? Okay, it's one of the poorest zip codes in King County. I know that area has a food desert. Perhaps these things are leading to all of the diseases that I just named. But if we leave it to race, what we've done is we pathologized race. And when you pathologize something, that means that that's what we try to fix. Instead of the actual risk factors that are causing the disease, and this sounds like a lot. You say, wait, do you, am I supposed to share that in my slides and my content? No. The point of this is that we're thinking about it. Uh, and I think a quick thing about race on, on content and slides is instead of it being a risk factor, there could be a section of risk factors that consider all these social influences. And then we have something that says at risk, that these people can be at risk of these diseases. That's very different than being 
the risk factor for that disease. But it's exploring that. What does that mean? Why do you use risk factor? How do we define risk factor? I think the other thing that um, another concern that I've heard from people is, well, you know, what do you do, right? Like, like what are we really doing on a day-to-day basis, like to address all of these, like the isms? Like, I'm not going to Harborview Family Medicine and like ending racism there, right? Like, that's just not happening, right? But what I I think, like this journey for me has been about really trying to become like the best doctor I can be and connecting with patients in a way that I probably wasn't connecting with them before. And I'm sure things will kind of continue to grow and evolve as I learn more, you know, as I reflect more, as people tell me about the mistakes that I make more. So I think it can feel overwhelming because it feels like some of the request might be, well, and go ahead and just fix societal structures. And I I don't think that that's actually the request. That's how do I engage with societal structures and my patients in a way that is therapeutic and healing and not harmful. And I think that that's what students are looking for. We hope you have enjoyed this Climbcast. Keep listening for additional podcasts in this series on how to create just and equitable learning materials and learning environments. In future podcasts, we'll be discussing the knowledge, skills, and attitudes that can be developed to manage high-tension moments in and out of the classroom.